This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Why is it so very hard to do absolutely zilch? Nothing on any given day. Are there really benefits to doing nothing at all? You were supposed to come in on Saturday. What were you doing? (laughs) Michael, I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. Today, we're talking about what we as Americans so often fear, doing nothing. And that does include some of you. I find it impossible to sit and do nothing because I'm hyperactive, regardless of my being 64 years old. I just can't. I can't do nothing. It's impossible. I've tried. There's always something to be done. And rather than leave it go, I, I just do it. We'll talk about meditation and how to build a habit of doing nothing. I'm Todd Zwillikin for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Jenny O'Dell wrote an entire book on doing nothing. It's called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And she joins me now from Oakland, California. Her latest book is called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Welcome back to the show, Jenny. Hi, it's so good to be here. And also with us from Brooklyn, and I'm so happy about this, Manoushna Marodi. She's host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and NPR's Body Electric podcast series, former co-worker of mine. She's also author of the book Bored and Brilliant. Manoush, it is great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Todd. So glad you're here. All right. Well, let's start right there. Jenny, you wrote a book, as I said, How to Do Nothing. So I got to ask, what in reality does it mean to do nothing? Do I have to sit on my couch and stare straight ahead with no expression on my face? Is that what we're talking about? No, although (laughs) that could be interesting to do. Maybe you could try it. Um, No, I think, you know, there's a bit of irony in the title where really it's referring to what we think of as nothing. I mean, there's whole kind of categories of things that we, you know, do or categories of activity that sort of don't appear productive, you know, things like maintenance, care, 
you know, spending time with others, you know, things that, yeah, from, from a certain point of view, don't appear productive. They appear like nothing. That's kind of more what, I, what I'm trying to point people towards. Uh, Manoush, what's your definition of doing nothing here? Oh, mine is definitely lying down and looking at the ceiling <laughs> and not moving at all. Um, yeah, no, doing nothing for me really means doing nothing with your body. But um, for me, that has turned into a whole trying to understand what happens in our brains when our bodies do nothing. Um, so we can talk about that, that our brains actually get very active when we allow them to uh, not be connected to our bodies in some ways. And that might start to help explain why some of us find it so hard, Manoush, to do nothing. So, I mean, let's start there. Why do many of us find it so very hard to stare at the ceiling or even take Jenny's definition of nothing and do something for ourselves that doesn't feel, air quotes, productive? Well, I've talked to a lot of cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists about what happens in our brains when we just let it go where it wants to go. And, you know, sometimes it trips into boredom or rumination or depression and anxiety, thinking things over that maybe make us really uncomfortable. And oftentimes that is why we reach for the phone or we start scrolling in order to distract ourselves from some uncomfortable ideas. But what I've been researching is this idea of boredom as a sort of gateway to mind wandering and more constructive thinking. So we know that when you get bored and you allow your mind to wander, you activate a network in your brain called the default mode. And it turns out the default mode is the place where we do our best problem solving, original thinking, uh, something called autobiographical planning, which is looking back at our life, figuring out how we got to be here right now and making plans to go forward, figuring out how we're going to do that. So to me, the idea of doing nothing is actually sort of a portal to doing some incredibly important thinking that we need to do that oftentimes we don't allow ourselves to do because maybe it does start with feeling uncomfortable or confronting things that are difficult to think about. Mm, and breaking through that anxiety of being alone with your thoughts, which, hey, I, I, mm. I get it. <laughs> a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that. And you can break through default mode. Sounds a lot like what other people have called a flow state. I want to talk more about that. Manoush, at the top of what you just said, you mentioned scrolling and you mentioned the phone. And Jenny, that has to be part of the conversation about the attention economy, which you wrote an entire book about related to this. What is the attention economy? And what's the connection to what we're talking about here, the ability to unplug or back away from it? Yeah. So I think um, the definition will kind of depend on who you ask. For me, the attention economy is, you know, kind of what it sounds like. It's um, any economy where the currency is attention. So I think social media is a pretty obvious example, but, you know, there's also things like advertising, or even more broadly, the sort of like the cult of the personal brand, like just anything where the goal is to sort of get more, more attention, more of the time, not necessarily high quality attention. And so obviously there's a lot about social media and other things that are designed to, you know, get that attention that are all around us that we're dealing with a lot of the time. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of people are working really hard on those designs to keep you um, in that attention economy. Um, and have a lot of incentive to do that. And so you're kind of up against a lot. And I think that there's a really important kind of first step in just seeing it, just seeing the attention economy at all and then seeing yourself in it. 
and starting to think about ways to disengage from it. And I think it's super important for the means of this discussion to disaggregate the attention economy away from what we're talking about doing nothing. I'm included in this. For so many of us, if you ask, hey, what'd you do? Oh, I did nothing. It might mean I spent 20 minutes scrolling my phone. Manoush, I I think we've established that that doesn't count. No, I'm sorry, Todd. It does not count. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, what are you doing when you're scrolling your phone? You are being bombarded with a plethora of sensations. You're feeling like, oh, look at that cute kitty. Oh, my gosh, look at the floods in California. Oh, whoa, look at what's going on in the Middle East. We feel outrage and anger and sadness and shock and awe and wonder back to back to back to back to the point that we become, I think, overloaded with emotions and physical cues. And we're definitely not doing nothing when we do that. We don't give ourselves a chance to even process or think about the things that we've just seen and and what it even means to us. We got this from Bill, who says there are some days on which my usual hobbies don't sound so appealing. So I decide to lie in bed and be alone with my thoughts. It's surprisingly relaxing. We also got this from Will, who says I practice psychiatry and I routinely prescribe to my patients nothing one day every week as tolerated for mood and anxiety. That's a doctor's recommendation, Manoush. Uh, what what parts of the brain are engaged in the default mode? From a neuropsychological point of view, what does doing nothing do for us on the neural level? Well, if we allow it to uh, to activate and really spend time there, it's when you get, as you mentioned, into that flow state. So, you know, you're you're folding laundry and then suddenly you look down at the laundry basket and it's all folded and you don't even remember actually doing it. it or maybe you, you know, drive a certain route to work and you suddenly find yourself in the parking lot. You're like, whoa, how did I just get here? That is your default mode was going into activity. It was, it took you away. It, it, it's imagination, it's creativity, it's picturing yourself in certain situations and modeling how they might go down. But, you know, the the last message um, that you just read out really reminds me of an interview that I recently did with a, another psychiatrist, Saib Khalsa, who is doing research at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in Oklahoma, and who is talking about this idea of uh, when we get overloaded with interoceptive uh, cues. So, you know, our interoceptive awareness is when we know our, our heart is pounding, but we have to diagnose it. Are we having a panic attack? Are we just excited about something? And he's looking into the relationship between having too much of these um, over uh, being overloaded with these emotional and physical cues and looking at how doing nothing like lying in a dark room for 45 minutes uh, and just allowing your mind and your muscles to relax as much as possible, how much that can give your brain and your body a break from this noisy world and the effects it can therefore have on uh, mental health and particularly people who are really struggling with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, Mm. sort of this idea of giving yourself a reboot Mm, I like that idea of a reboot. And I think for so many of us, the challenge of, I don't know, the first 15 or 20 minutes, I'm not sure how long it is, uh, being alone with your thoughts, often there's noise. There's, I don't know, self-narration, that voice inside your head. For a lot of us, that's not always easy to deal with. You want to reach for the phone, you break through it, and you can get to a place, maybe with a task, maybe it's doing laundry, where the flow state kicks in. Coming up, we'll talk about meditation. Does that count as doing nothing? We'll get into it after a short break. 
For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Look, I'm working right now. I'd like to be doing nothing, but I can't. This is work. But can we get to a point where even our work or our everyday Idle time gets more productive for our brains and for our well-being. And a lot of you told us how you feel when you're doing nothing. I'm somebody that is ADHD, so the idea of doing nothing is very hard for me. And when I do, sometimes I feel like I've wasted the day. But during that time, it feels relaxing and refreshing. I just have to remind myself that I'm doing it with intention, not out of laziness. I grew up attending a Quaker school in Philadelphia for 13 years. Part of our daily practice was sitting in silence. Each day we started with 10 minutes of silence, and on Wednesdays we would sit for an hour in silence. How often are we allowed to sit and not talk and not be expected to do anything and just let our mind take us where it wants to go? We really appreciate those messages from you. And we just got there. Meditation has for a long time been a way to slow down and focus ourselves, especially in a culture where we're on the go, go, go all the time. If we're trying to do less, what can we learn from meditation? And is meditation really actually doing nothing? Or is it something more? All right, Jenny O'Dell and Manoush Zamarodi are going to hang in for just a moment because I want to turn to Sharon Salzberg. She's an author and co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, who joins the conversation now. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. Great to have you with us. So to start off, just the basics, what exactly does it mean to meditate? Well, usually it means not doing the things we ordinarily do. First of all, we're not you know, engaged in uh, trying to figure out a strategic plan or or something like that. That may come up, but our goal is actually to sit or walk whatever posture we're in and to dedicate that time to deepening awareness, compassion, qualities like that. Is meditation doing nothing? I mean, it's active, it's intentional, but it strives for emptiness or awareness that transcends the noise of our thoughts, right? Do you think it fits with the idea of doing nothing, or is it something to the side of that? Uh, well, I think it does fit when we first 
established this retreat center in Barry, Mass., the Insight Meditation Society. Somebody created like a mock brochure for us, and he had as the motto, it's better to do nothing than to waste your time. <laughs> because so much of the time we are wasting our lives, really. We're, uh, we're lost. You know, we're not really conscious. We're not really aware. And yet we have every possibility of returning, kind of rebooting, as you said, just being with our experience. So it's not like nothing is happening. That's not necessarily the case. You could even have, you know, sleepiness, rumination, boredom, depression, whatever may be arising, but we're not jumping on it. We're not uh, holding on, pushing away, um, doing the things we ordinarily do. So that whole level of reactivity can mm. come to a quieter place. Talk, talk a little bit more about that for those who haven't meditated or for those who have only a very maybe only tried once or twice or a very basic practice. What's, what's going on subjectively with someone when they start meditating? Well, let's say we're sitting, we're using a technique like uh, being aware of the feeling of the in and out breath, the actual sensations of the breath. It's usually not that long before maybe a big emotion arises. And the question is, how are we with that emotion? Let's say it's anger. Maybe we don't like it. Maybe it's been forbidden. Maybe we take it to heart. We project it into the future. This is the only thing I'll ever feel. We had isolation. I'm the only one who ever feels this or whatever it might be. So we are filling the space around the emotion with a lot of projection and reaction. And so that's the level that starts to relax and we don't need to buy into it. And then we can be with the emotion, whatever it is, in a deeper way. We come to understand it, how it relates to what we're feeling in our body. So much insight can arise just from not doing the things we ordinarily do. There is plenty of science here. The Mayo Clinic says meditation can improve emotional well-being, help manage anxiety, and improve sleep and memory. So more broadly, Sharon, what else can meditation do for us, if, if, as though that list wasn't enough? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good list. Yeah, it's a pretty good list. Maybe you don't have it's to go further. Yeah. <laughs> the dual nature of it is that, for one thing, it helps us inhabit our lives. You know, we're not needing to always be multitasking. Maybe we can, for example, uh, take a breath before a, a phone call or a meeting. We can experience drinking a cup of tea or coffee without also be checking our email. We get in the habit of more settling into our experience. But even more fundamentally, maybe meditation helps us understand our lives. You know, like I use the example a lot of myself sitting and looking at fear and rather than, you know, trying to figure out why am I afraid and what am I going to do about it, the question becomes, what is this? What does it feel like in my body? What's the sort of fear movie as it plays out? And we see so much. You know, I've seen that when I sit and look at fear, for example, unlike the world's adage, which of course is true, that we're afraid of the unknown, I get afraid when I think I do know. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really mm -hmm. bad. And it's all the stories I start generating that's when I get really afraid. And that was an insight I could take into my daily life. And as soon as that arc of anxiety would begin, I would say, you don't know. If in fact, I didn't know. And, and space would just open up. So Sharon, what are one or two things that someone could do today, right now, to use meditation principles to do nothing if they haven't tried it before? Step one. I would say uh, sit comfortably if, if you want and 
uh, have some kind of device set <clears throat> so that it's going to ding or ring in three minutes, no more than three minutes. You don't have to worry about overdoing it. And uh, choose an object. Like Just feel your breath come in and out of your body. And do not worry if your mind wanders, if you fall asleep, whatever it might be. And just practice. Sharon Salzberg, she's an author and founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we heard from Bill in Michigan who said, shower time, that's the time when I do my best nonlinear thinking, when my brain makes connections and solutions that were beyond my conscious thoughts. It's nice to know that this is a somewhat normal phenomenon. Manoush, talk about the shower. I love this idea of having a place where you can feel like your brain is uh, able to do what it wants to do. That's what I find so uh, interesting about this conversation and people's response is that I think we need, we've filled our days so much with work and being online and all of these things is that we have to reclaim the things that as a kid I never talked about, like only boring people got bored, right? Mm. So now we have to say like, I know this one kid who goes to take a bath and he says, I'm headed for the default mode, you know? He, we have to call it something. We have to put it on our to-do list. Do nothing needs to go on our to-do list. Having a name for it, making doing nothing an active choice. Well, I'd love to get your reaction, guys, from what Sharon Salzberg had to say about meditation, which I sort of protested when we were planning this show, I thought, well, I thought meditation isn't really doing nothing. And, and Sharon set me straight. It absolutely qualifies. Still to come, how can we build a habit of doing nothing. Back with more in just a moment. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. All right, let's get back to the art of doing nothing. Maybe it's boredom and how we choose what to do with our time and recognizing that doing nothing and being bored are not the same thing. Well, Jenny, a lot of what we're hearing from some people is that they feel a little bit guilty when they try to use their time to do nothing. What's, a, what's another way to think about time from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that that guilt often comes from a way of thinking about time where it's very quantitative. It's sort of like the work hour or the work day and you're not getting enough work you know, per unit of time. And a different way to think about it is closer to you know, thinking about moments. So for example, um, I went on a walk through a park with a good friend of mine last year. It was a really long walk. It was probably several hours long and we had this long ranging conversation and then we got back to the bus stop and he said, you know, I think that whole walk was one moment, which really made me think about, you know, what is a moment? And I think if you reflect on your day, especially if you've had like a, a nice, like varied day, um, there are kind of like, you, you recognize that there are different times, like time feels different in different parts of the day. I mean, I use in the, in the book, I use the word chronodiversity to describe this. Um, and so there's this recognition that, yeah, not all time is the same. Um, not all time is going to feel the same, and you should sort of appreciate things about this particular moment that are unique to this moment um, within a day or even within a year. I mean, just to go back to seasons, like that's something that I um, 
I love to observe in the book, I talk about this branch of the single branch of a single tree in a park near my apartment that I paid attention to basically all year. And right now it's like one of the most exciting times of the year for this branch because the the buds are opening, the leaves are coming out. Every day that I walk past, it looks different. Um, so I think trying to find that difference in time um, and, and appreciate it. Uh, for me, that's been really helpful for just kind of feeling and seeing time differently. I'm so interested in the intentionality that you mentioned before, Manoush. Um, talk about intentional nothing. Using these tasks, I mean, we, we, we had the shower where your mind can wander to a productive place, but also folding the laundry and, and making the assertive choice to use the nothing for something. You know, I think it comes back to what you and Jenny were just talking about, this idea of guilt or feeling bad, like you've let someone down, you've let yourself down if you uh, spend too much time online or conversely, if you do nothing. Well, what if we just accept that these are different ways that we need to use our brains and they feel good or bad in different ways? And so I'm really trying to like let myself off the hook. There is a game that I have been playing on my phone for a decade now. It embarrasses me to tell you what it is or what level I'm on, but I've just accepted. I gain pleasure out of it. It's Candy Crush and it's level 3000, right? It's actually two dots and it's level. I don't even want to know. And I've just decided, so freaking knock yourself out, lady. Take 15 minutes and uh, play your stupid game. And if it relaxes you, like stop feeling so bad about it all the time. And conversely, like this idea of like lying on the floor and letting my dog just walk around and sniff me while I'd be confused why I'm lying there, that feels like, oh, I should, you know, I should vacuum. I should, there's always something, as a lot of your listeners have said, to do. But I do those things better. I do everything better when I give myself some breaks. And that, I need that. I mm. have to have that. It can feel, I think, a lot for a lot of us who feel like, you know, either type A or very frenetic, or some of your listeners have mentioned having, you know, hyperactivity, like we have to build these things, we need to be purposeful about building them into our lives, these breaks so that we do all the other things that much better. Well, Tim from Illinois writes, I actually try to schedule doing nothing every day. It's part of my mental health and well being routine. I had a stroke in 2016 at 46 years old. Now I'm retired and do more than I ever did working my whole life. Doing nothing for an hour or so helps me reset in my life. Um, Manoush, Tim is talking about scheduling that nothing as, uh, as a hedge against the great dark nothing, really as a hedge against boredom. I mean, I think he's also talking about what I mentioned before, this idea that neuroscientists are looking into ways that your body, that we're understanding more and more about how the mind and body connect and how they influence each other. And this neuroscientist I was interviewing is looking at the uh, float labs, this idea of floating in water. Can you just completely let go so that you have no sensory input? And what effects does this have on our mental health? And they're seeing, you know, really big effects. And of course, not all of us can go hang out in a float lab in salty water doing nothing. But what we can do, he says, you know, take 45 minutes, go into the bedroom, turn off all the lights, close the shades. Don't let the dog come hang out with you. No music. Try to just have no sensory input and relax your muscles and your mind. Your your body and your mind are connected and they both need that to, as your as your listener says, to to feel better. When you get up and go on with your day. Jenny, what are your thoughts here on creating 
boredom habits. God, you can't even bring the dog in, I guess, which I don't like the sound of that, but I suppose it's for the best if you're trying to do nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Um, I, I, I guess I, I practice a form of that scheduling in that I do take that walk every morning and I do things like, you know, I have to travel for work sometimes and I will try to sort of build in time for just wandering around, especially if it's, you know, not a city that I've been to. And I think a lot of it just, it, it feels counterintuitive at first. Like, I think there's just so much kind of cultural messaging and other things, you know, other reasons why we feel like when we see something that looks like empty space on a calendar or a schedule, we want to fill it in. Um, we feel like it's asking to be filled in. And so I think there's there's something, you know, really important about just learning that first, there's a first moment where you kind of see that impulse and you, and you, and you know you acknowledge it, but you're like, I'm not going to go there. Um, I'm going to actually like leave the space open. It's going to appear empty to me. Of course, it's not really going to be empty. It might actually be like the fullest experience that you end up having. But I think it's that sort of like getting used to that that knee jerk reaction and then backing away from it, and you know, doing whatever you can to you know put those put those spaces in your day or in your week or whatever you can do. Well, we got this message from Mike, who writes to say, "Bear in mind for those working multiple jobs to make ends meet." Time doing nothing is a luxury that they probably can't afford. Uh, Manoush, that's point taken. There are other ways to take breaks, which is what I've been sort of exploring more recently. We just did a project called Body Electric, where we uh, partnered with Columbia University Medical Center to put walking breaks into our day to see what effects those had on them. And uh, you might be surprised, bosses, listen closely, letting people take walking breaks um, regularly, intervals throughout the day actually uh, improved job performance. Um, it made people feel more energized. They reported an average of 25% reduction in fatigue. So, you know, as Jenny said, it feels counterintuitive, but actually the, the benefits are there. We got this message from Christine who says, uh, I turned to doing nothing in 2020 during COVID uh, into a book of photos and simple poems on nature called Outside My House. I was surprised at how much I noticed while doing nothing. Well, last year, we talked about the idea of self-care with psychiatrist Pooja Lakshman. It's, it's not as easy or as simple as wellness brands make it sound. The, the, the parts of doing nothing that are really about what we mentioned at the top of the show, that this is a form of caring for yourself. Here's Dr. Lakshman. You know, the problem is outside of us. It's like the pace of life, the constant demands that are on all of us often feels like it's too much. And so I think you have to ask yourself in those moments, you have to be able to assess, do I need a little escape? Do I need a little break? And then take it and then also be able to come back and when you're out of fight or flight, when your nervous system is feeling a little bit more calm, come back and then look strategically at how you're spending your time and what choices are possible for you. That was Dr. Pooja Lakshman talking about the difficulty of making time for that kind of self-care. Um, Jenny, I think this gets back in a way to exactly what Mike was talking about in his comment that for a lot of busy people, for many, many busy people, doing nothing can be a luxury that they can't afford. How, how have you been thinking about taking time? Is it is it a privilege to be able to take time to do nothing? How, how have you been thinking about since you initially wrote your How to Do Nothing book in 2019? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a privilege. And I guess, I you know, I feel like there's 
on the one side of things, there's, you know, someone who actually just has no control over their time. You know, they're, they're on someone else's clock or multiple other clocks. Um, and that is the reason that they feel that they have no time. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who, you know, in theory could actually have quite a bit of control over their time, but they feel very strongly that they don't. And of course, there's a huge gray area in between those two. Um, and I think that, but it's important to acknowledge, obviously, that those are, are different things. And it's actually that middle area is something I thought about a lot when I was teaching college students for eight years um, at Stanford, which is a very, you know, that's a very achievement-focused um, culture. And because I was teaching art in particular to students who were typically not in the humanities, so they were coming in, you know, very concerned about their grades, um, wanting things to do, wanting to do things in the right way. And, you know, I had to kind of work against that and create a space where they felt comfortable, you know, experimenting and, and making art. Um, and oftentimes the art was about the pressures <laughs> that they were experiencing. But it, it was a long time for me to sort of reflect on, you know, it's, it was hard to ask them to suddenly just have a different value system because they were, you know, even if I had one student who individually decided like, you know, I'm going to do nothing they're surrounded by, you know, other people who are acting in a very competitive way. They're in a competitive environment. Um, and so I think it just gave me some respect for like the things that people are up against, even in a privileged environment like that, mm. right? Like some of it's coming, you know, some of it's coming from inside the house, but some of it is coming from outside <laughs> the house. <laughs> I think so much of what we're talking about here, at least the message that I've gotten very clearly from both of you is the intentionality of it, that doing nothing becomes something <laughs> very valuable when it's intentional, when it has intentionality and motive and motivation and self-care behind it, then it's not really nothing at all. We got this message. This is a good one. I have a question about doing nothing for your panelists. I have a daughter who's 18 months old. Is there some methodology that I can begin including in our home curriculum that helps her learn to do nothing from a very young age? Manoush, what do you think? Oh, yeah. And I messed up on this, I have to say. Mm. So take this <laughs> parenting advice. Uh, my my son is 16 now. So um, I thought that I needed to constantly be engaging his brain to, in order for him to develop in the most wonderful way possible. And I think I did him a disservice. There really is something to be said for putting your kid in the bouncy chair in the corner and having them observe whatever else is going on, whether that is you gardening, uh, just listening to the birds, to the wind, or maybe they, you know, I, I think that they're really, <laughs> there's something to be said for letting a child sit and observe or what if your child is mobile to explore on their own without direction, mm. um, letting them find their way slowly and intuitively. So interesting because your reaction to putting baby in the corner and doing nothing, your initial reaction might be neglect. It's not that yeah. at all. No, I don't think so. I think you're <laughs> Capacity is what you're building. Capacity to be alone with your thoughts, to observe, to make connections, to be an, uh, a watchful person who enjoys observing the world and mm. appreciates all it offers. What a great conversation. Our guests today were Jenny O'Dell. She's an artist and author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And her newest book is called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. And Manoush Zumarodi. She's host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and NPR's Body Electric Podcast. She's also author of the book Bored and Brilliant. 
Jenny, Manoush, thanks to you both. Today's producers who did not do nothing are Jorgelina Manarea and Michael Falero. This program comes to you from WAMU. It's part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillikin for Jen White. We'll talk soon. This is 1A. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.